Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, you sent me a podcast by our hero, Tyler Cowan. He has a podcast called Conversations with Tyler, and he just brings in all sorts of our elites and intellectuals and just asks them lots of questions. A couple of weeks ago, he had an interview with former General Stanley McChrystal about the military and about kind of the future of war and about the mindset of war. And it was wide ranging. And I would just say absolutely fascinating. I recommend that everybody go listen to this thing. What did you think about the podcast in general, Don? To understand the conversation with Tyler, you have to know that before Tyler interviews somebody, he reads everything they've ever written, meaning going back 50 years, reading every published work that they did as an undergraduate, as a graduate student, as a professional, he reads everything. And in general, he reads everything. He probably spends 10 to 14 hours a day reading. Every day he posts six things that he's reading and it's like prolific in addition to all the books he's reading. And that's why he's our hero is he reads things, retains the information and asks wonderful questions. And in the podcast, whoever's interviewing is always saying, wow, you went deep on that. Wow, I never, I, I wrote that 30 years ago. He is just so well thought out and prepared and he just finds the niche issue that this person hasn't been asked before. And the beautiful thing about McChrystal is he doesn't dodge a single question. He answers them immediately, quickly, and thoughtfully. It's just incredible. It really is. The, the, the pace of just the interview is, is quick, and yet they cover so many topics. The other thing I really admire about Mr. Cowan is that he doesn't use his podcast or platform to just try to like push an agenda. I think about like cable news where you'll have hosts that have a guest on, but really the guest is just there to kind of get shouted at or to, to push some other agenda the, the, the host wants. Instead, Tyler kind of asks the questions and then lets the other guy answer and then kind of moves on to the next question and just says, that's it. Like, we're not going to just sit here and I'm going to try to win something. And again, I, I think it's something that we don't do often in society anymore is just communicate, have an exchange of ideas. There might be a disagreement, but let's just keep talking. Yeah, recently he had a uh, very strong feminist on and they did disagree. And afterwards there was some blowback and his writing concerning that was saying, I appreciate a disagreement because that means that people are valuing my ideas and addressing them. And that is very, that shows a lot of respect to me. And I just love that idea that it's, he's in it for the discussion and for the verbal jousting that is intellectual in nature, not a shout down. So anyways, I can't recommend enough. I would highly recommend go listen to the podcast. And then if you don't want to listen to us anymore, you don't have to, or listen <laughs> to the podcast and then listen to us. But what we want to do this week is just sort of share our favorite quotes from the podcast and then just kind of talk about it. One of the things this podcast really made me think about is the military. And, and Don, it just kind of made me wonder, do you think that Americans in general think about the military enough? No, not nearly enough for the, the liberty we've had and have had for really generations and without being invaded, without being threatened on our home turf, other than Pearl Harbor for generations, we felt very secure and safe. And it's due to the military and the people that selflessly serve that. Right. And I, I was thinking that too. And think, the thing I found very interesting about this whole podcast was McChrystal uses the term common defense a couple of times in there. And in some ways, I feel like he's trying to tell every American, look, like we're all in this together. And he talks in this thing about like military recruitment and people serving in the military and the idea that we all have a responsibility for common defense. I thought one of his interesting quotes was he talked about the idea of COVID and how America has kind of not really treated this like a common defense issue. And I thought that was just sort of interesting. I think when the military, I think obeying orders, but then when you hear upper level military leaders speak, they're really addressing principles and thoughts. And I maybe, maybe I'm um, not giving enough credit to the military in terms of the values that underlie those following orders and what that is truly about. And McChrystal really seems to have principles about how we should work as a society to better unify and defend our nation through that power, that group power, rather than just guns and tanks well when it comes to again thinking about the military tyler asks a really good question so here's the kind of the first thing i want to bring up from it is i'm going to read kind of tyler's question and then mccrystal's answer and then i just want to get your thoughts about it but tyler says when it comes to warfare what do you think is today the most common probabilistic mistake made by u.s policymakers i don't mean this to be about naming names just in general what's our blind spot and mccrystal says 
Yeah, I think we want it to oversimplify it. We want to look back at World War II and see it as simplistic. You go crush your enemy into rubble, and then in the aftermath, you rebuild. Yet, from Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, we often don't admit the complexities because you're dealing with war among people and of people. So you're dealing with societies, not straight weapon on weapon or an army on army. I don't think we do that as well as we should. What do you think about when you hear that done? The military leaders get it a lot more than we think they did. And one of the, as we look back at what happened in Vietnam, and if you read about the Pentagon Papers, and Vietnam was about a civil war, really, that we inserted ourselves into in order to sway it one way that we wanted to, inevitably unsuccessfully sway it the way we wanted it to go. And it was really a civil war. And that's why it didn't work for us to get involved. We can't prop up this inevitably falling regime. But it took a whole war and a lot of lives before Americans could look back and really think this is what actually happened. And General McChrystal's really thinking about those things. Well, the thing that I found interesting was I like that he brought up World War II, because one thing I've always wondered, and as somebody who's taught some U.S. history, and we both have actually, is do you think America is kind of too obsessed with World War II and its results? I mean, we're getting almost to the 100-year anniversary of the beginning of that war, it happened a long time ago. And yet I feel like a lot of America's perception of itself and of the world comes from our sort of winning of World War II. And yet you think about, again, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, you could make arguments that America sort of lost or stalemated in every one of those wars after World War II. But yet in some ways, I feel like we still see ourselves as the World War II winning nation. Absolutely. And Tom Hanks just made a movie about World War II, about the convoys and getting them across the ocean. We watched it. It was great because it's a great way for us to look in this thing and see it as, well, maybe foolishly, as McChrystal seems to assert, that it is a good versus evil. And it's crystal clear we had pure, mo pure motivations and it's just a triumph of good over evil, which is a great story to tell. It's a much more happy story to tell and less complex than the story of Vietnam, which is very fraught and much more so even for Iraq and Afghanistan. We're not even making movies about Afghanistan or thinking about Afghanistan that much because it is so complicated and difficult to address. But don't you think that at this point, World War II is almost dangerous? Because I feel oh. like sometimes people want to just always hearken back to them, right? I mean, you, I mean, I had friends in college that I think we met some French guy and they were like, yeah, we saved your ass in World War II. And it's like, what does that guy care? That was 80 years ago. And yet I still feel like there's this mindset of what our grandparents did still matters today. I mean, we can definitely trace back a lot of how the world works is because of the results of World War II. But that doesn't mean that your military still has the sort of dominance that it did back then. And yet again, we're not looking very hard at Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, and these very complicated military endeavors that a lot of them were protested equally at home as they were prosecuted. I don't know. I just thought that was a really interesting quote he had. I think we like simple stories, and we like the stories the way we know them. So the way I remember having a Canadian friend that I talked to in college, and he was saying, you know, the way you Americans learn the Revolutionary War, as you call it, is really different from the rest of the world. Yeah, but we love the way we learned it. And that is kind of an American bravado thing is that the Americans were the underdog and they fought off these British soldiers and to then become dominant around the world, which is the way most Americans, I think, remember it. And they like remembering it. It's part of our mythology and part of our American ethos. Whether or not it's correct is not really important to most Americans, I think. And those other wars you just mentioned are ones that are damaging and scary. And we don't want to address it because we get cognitive dissonance when we compare that to how we look at ourselves based upon the Revolutionary War and the, and the uh, World War II. I like what you said about the mythology. And I do think there's something important about that. You shouldn't be sad that your country won one World War II or that, you know, America kind of came to, to defeat, you know, the Axis powers. And then, you know, one of the more interesting things is we pretty much left and we didn't come and just conquer a bunch of land and stuff like that. And there's a lot to point to you can be proud of. And, I, and you're right, the mythology is there. But I just wonder if, do you think maybe one of the problems in schools and in teaching history 
is that we don't go backwards enough. I, I almost think, shouldn't a history class start with our current wars that, we're, that we've either just finished or are currently fighting and then kind of trace them back? And shouldn't we spend the most time on Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, and the least amount of time on World War II or the Civil War or the Revolutionary War? The best history teacher I know is Steve Conklin, who's now retired, but he, I remember him talking to me in the early 2000s about finding a way to teach AP US history, starting at the present and going backwards. And I don't know enough about whether if he ever actually tried it or perfected it, but I think there is a lot to be gained there. And you could really focus entirely differently, but also probably much more relevance on your idea if you did that way. Well, you know, and the other thing too, just about in school in general is as you get later and later into a term or the school year, you know, you're kind of pressed for time to cover the material. And then all of a sudden, what kind of ends up happening is the present day gets sort of rushed through just so you can, you can finish the class, right? It's almost like the most important kind of present day stuff usually just never gets taught that well or analyzed. And you could also say, well, part of it is we're still trying to figure out exactly what it all means. But I do think maybe schools should be rethinking this stuff. Well, and benchmarks are written at a given time, referencing up to a given point, and they're readdressed every five, 10 years. So the immediate past isn't even in the most recent benchmarks, which may lay there untouched for five, 10 years. And our responsibility as high school teachers is to teach the benchmarks. So yeah, the system does not at all put any value on the present. That's a really good point. I mean, I remember when I got my start with you, I think you showed me the benchmarks. Hey, this is what we got to teach. And there's a lot of benchmarks about communism and about, you know, sort of the big red machine in Russia. And you think, hey, like those are still some things that are maybe relevant to teach and think about, but maybe they're overly weighted at this point. Hey, in the Michigan State benchmarks and economics, we're still shaking our fist at Cuba. They're, they're evil. They're communists down there. They're a big threat to us. Can you share with me one of the, the quotes or ideas that you heard from the podcast that you found interesting? I more paraphrased it, but around seven minutes and 30 seconds in, Stanley McChrystal's asked, is knowing history important to being a leader in the military? And his response is, it's, it's essential. Otherwise, we're just relying on personal experiences. And he goes at some length talking about how it's essential and why it's essential to understand history. But the last, it's almost a throwaway line is, Otherwise, we're just judging things on personal experiences. And I realized that that's almost entirely what we do, including what you and I are talking about right now. We're judging things based on our personal experiences. And the idea that there's greater ideas and greater things happening are much more invaluable than what is just things that you've experienced. And really taking this worldview and a well-thought-out scholarly view of everything that's happened is something that really blew my mind. It's an idea that, wow, we really need to take this from an entirely different perspective. I wrote this one down as well in terms of one thing that I thought was a really great comment, and I, I'm with you. And you know, the idea of constraining the mind, right? If you're not reading, and again, it doesn't just have to be history, but if you're not reading, if you're not learning, then you're probably not thinking of all the angles. And most people's personal experiences are pretty limited, right? They're limited to their local communities, to maybe their jobs, to their families, their friends. But most people don't have a wealth of major experiences that are going to be able to help them understand how to use a military. And I think that's what I also just took away is really important that you've got people thinking on a foreign policy level and on a military strategy level about a lot of things and trying to take in a lot of data points into consideration I feel like when you just kind of quote unquote, go with your gut or what you think is right, you're really missing a lot of the bigger points here. Well, and later on the podcast, he talks about Henry Kissinger and how he would just zoom out to a 10,000 foot view on any issue, then take you back down to the ground to really explain what's happening in an area. And it's not just, this is happening right now. We got to make a choice. It is what is actually the history of this and how did this develop? And how are the stakeholders feeling based upon what they know of everything involved? And so it really appreciates the local population or the involved citizen situation and gives you context. We try to judge people really quickly in our society, not just in wars, but day to day without considering the entire scheme of everything that's happened to them. And people reference their families and their grandfathers or grandmothers and great grandparents and how that changes their feeling. And these are things that should be taken into account. 
I think our boy Churchill would agree with Mr. McChrystal and would think, yes, you need to know the whole situation. I agree with you. At the same time, here was the question I kind of wrote down is like, of course, people like Churchill or like Abraham Lincoln or like some of our other favorite intellectuals in history and leaders, we would like to believe that these were well-read people that were thinking from 10,000 feet and not just by personal experience. But I also just kind of wondered, are we sure that they weren't just also kind of going by personal experience? And is it possible that we've always kind of just sort of made decisions mostly on personal experience? We talk about how we should make good choices by reading lots of things and considering lots of viewpoints. But at the end of the day, I kind of wonder if maybe that's just like, you know, hindsight being 2020. That's a good point. I don't think he would say take your personal experiences are not involved at all, but that your personal experiences can't be the only thing you're thinking about. Well, let's make this comparison. So you have George W. Bush and Barack Obama. George W. Bush being this born-again Christian person that believes in fate and you know, the going with his gut and making the just best judgments from his heart based upon how he believes the situation is. And then Barack Obama is this wise scholar who's brilliant and references so many scholarly works. Who had more drone attacks on developing nations? Obama. By a lot. Here's this guy that we want to look at as the sage, wise scholar. He was going on his gut and making these calls as more so than Bush. And so it gives you an idea like, well, there's some personal aspect there too. It can't just be all scholarly research, but you can't be going in with your eyes closed, just saying, I know everything. I'll solve it just based upon my gut. I would also just say that both Bush and Obama are surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of people that have spent their whole lives studying all sorts of issues. And therefore, they bring a, a vast number of opinions to them as they're trying to finally figure out what's the final decision. I kind of made me wonder, though, do you think sometimes our leaders, maybe they get too many ideas when they're trying to think of something or come up with their own policy? And therefore, you almost get like, paralysis by analysis in a way. Well, that's when putting together a group of uh, advisors is so critical. And how do they streamline this machine? We kind of talked about that with Andrew Yang and that this beast of your uh, election campaign becomes an even bigger beast of governing at some point. And having to manage that beast is uh, really the challenge. And how do you streamline these ideas down to what's critically important and who you trust? That's the magic, isn't it? You know, again, I, I like this idea of, you know, again, history is what's used. And I think that history is not something that you look at it to then see what decision you're supposed to make. I think history can just at least broaden your perspective about the human experience at, at some point, right? What humans have done before. And I think that that is a very important thing. The thing that I just always sort of think a lot about is sort of, you know, kind of the rise in anti-intellectualism, cancel culture, social media echo chambers. And in a lot of ways, it does make me wonder if we have a lot of individuals now that instead of trying to seek out what is reality and seek out what are prudent procedures that can, you know, maybe benefit the most people, we just kind of go with our gut. We go with what we feel but a lot of people seem to like that, right? It's simple. It's easy to understand. And I guess I feel like I want a leader that's sort of torn and still hates whatever decision they've decided. Is that wrong of me to kind of want somebody that sees it all from all the angles and is just like, oh, this is like the best of all the worst decisions? Or would you rather say no? You want somebody who pounds the table and says, this is the correct decision. Well, I think our leaders probably are torn, but they can't present that. They can't walk out in front of the country and say like, well, this is really hard. Oh, I'm not sure what to do, but we're going to go with option A. They have to say like, no, we've made, we are certain that this is the right thing to do. America doesn't want to hear from somebody that says, man, maybe, I don't know. That's not real leadership. <laughs> you know what? I'm sure when you're in a basketball game coaching, you're not out there like, well, we're probably going to kill either way, but we might as well press because that gives us a 5% chance of winning rather than not pressing. And we'll lose. Certainly like, they want to, you want to hear, this is our chance. This is the way we will win, ladies, is we will press every moment. No, and I, I guess isn't that sort of the, the irony then is we expect our leaders, especially our president, to be these people with magical wands that can just solve everything, right? 
And then the moment they hit office and we just start to slowly chip away at them, right? We realize they can't solve everything. We realize they're not the smartest people in the room. We realize that the world is much more complex than even they can solve. And as you're saying, but hey, they've got to always present that they're in charge, right? That everything's, that they still have the one. And it's like so obvious that none of them ever do. Well, and I would say that uh, General McChrystal probably wouldn't say this if he wasn't done with the military. No, that's a good point. It'd be very interesting if he was still a active general. How is he talking right now? Because in some ways, he gets to now sound like the wise sage, right? But as you've also kind of pointed out, like he's not on the stage anymore. And therefore, in some ways, you get to sort of uh, look like the public intellectual who can kind of play both sides of it. Yeah. Well, I want to stay on the leadership point because this was another thing that I really enjoyed from the interview. And so Cowan just asks, let's say 20 years from now, 30 years from now, what does the equilibrium look like for controversial public figures? Will it be a world where you almost can't go out in public? And McChrystal says, if the trend continues where it is, I think you'll have a tremendous number of people who won't even consider becoming public figures. They will just avoid it. Then you will have these people who I call Teflon celebrities, where their goal in life is to be a celebrity. They just don't mind that. They will step into the limelight, as many have now, and they will live there. The danger is that our politicians come from that latter group. People who are willing to go into very public spaces like that, or actually the people who in previous times would have been superficial celebrities. I think that's very, very dangerous, but we're going to have to come to grips with it. The social media ability, the glare, if we can't get some maturity in this and some new accommodation, then I think we'll have a very difficult period 20 years from now. I can't envision exactly what the solution is, but I know there's going to have to be something. Don, what do you think about that in terms of our leaders? The role as a leader, as a government official, is one that is less desirable every year because the blowback, the amount of, I mean, we were reading this week about death threats to Fred Upton, the U.S., the uh, congressman from Western Michigan, because he voted for the Biden uh, infrastructure program. It, it wasn't abortion. It wasn't guns. It was infrastructure. And he's getting death threats for voting for that. I mean, it's a job that doesn't pay that that well. It doesn't offer you tremendous security. And it does offer you tremendous amounts of people being angry with you and negative feedback. And why do you want to be a government official? And as these jobs become undesirable, why are people still going into it? The president of the United States makes, I think, 300000 a year. And now afterwards, usually they do better with speaking tours and so forth. But if you want to be a leader, why not go for a corporation? Why not go for an entrepreneurship? If you are a great leader and a really intelligent person, it's a tough sell to go into government. And that's the fear I think you see is that it's just so odious that good people don't want to do it. Well, and this is a major theme, I think, throughout the podcast when it comes to especially those who want to serve in the military is it is important to have politicians at the end of the day, though. It's important to have people with a broad base of experiences and are well-read and can kind of think about issues that you know impact lots of people and to have thoughtful people. And as you're just kind of pointing out, it's almost amazing now how the public feels like it can just send death threats and just go to public meetings and just shout and not have to listen to the other side. And it makes me sort of wonder, like, who will be the ones that want to serve if this is how you're going to be treated, right? It just seems really unappealing. And therefore, as McChrystal points out, you're just going to get a group of people that probably are just, you know, wanting to be in charge of something and they don't really have any real qualifications other than, you know, they're doing weird things online or they can shout or they just sort of, you know, rule from experience. And that doesn't seem beneficial for Americans at any level of government, if that's what we're getting. Absolutely. If it's just being getting attention, that's, we talked about that last week or two weeks ago with uh, Andrew Yang. There's a job to get attention and a job to govern. They're not well, people aren't well suited for both necessarily. Well, and you and I talked about this a little bit last week, but I just think about, again, it, it different than just like school board members or city council members or, or congressional leaders, but just administration in public office. I mean, think about like principals in schools, right? We've talked about that or administrators at a higher level of a school district, or, I mean, they're all people kind of on, you know, with the big targets on their back now as people want to, you know, express their displeasure at them. And you just wonder if, this will go deeper than just 
Congress people and, and presidents, right? Like this could go down to like bureaucrats, people who run important offices of the government. And at some point, do we need to get a hold of like how we communicate to each other? Because it just seems to get nastier and it makes you wonder, will people just not want to serve? And these are important functions to keep a society going. That's where people start, right? They start as a school board member or a city council member. Then they work up to a state or local representative and then up to a congressperson or a senator or a president. They, they don't just all of a sudden show up and be president. Well, not usually. Usually they've worked their way up. And in the past, it was in the military. Like, I think General McChrystal could have been a great presidential candidate, but probably didn't want to do that. But it's just, where do these people start? And are they, by the time they get there, are they jaded? Is it awful? I mean, I've thought a lot about our method of communication. And in some ways, it's too easy. I think we wouldn't have all these crazy thoughts if you had to pull out a piece of paper and write them out. And you were judged by your written word and your spelling and your penmanship. I mean, that would really slow everything down. Or if you had to actually physically go somewhere to talk to somebody. When you talk to somebody face-to-face, -face, even if you don't agree with them with anything, you get a little bit of empathy, unless you're just hollering at them at a town hall. It's, in a sense, the easier communication gets, the more volatile it gets. Maybe communication needs to be harder. Should we tax tweets? Should we tax emails? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think it should, I remember I heard somebody once propose the idea of like, it should be a dollar a tweet or something like that, right? That's how Twitter could make money and we could get less tweets, but it is, it's very easy to communicate and it's very easy to just put out, you know, kind of the, I guess the lowest common denominator of thoughts and anger. And at the same time, I do just wonder the longer term consequences of, you know, what this is going to mean for people that want to do this job. I, I think about it kind of like, you know, I, again, I coach middle school basketball, but we have no young referees anymore. All of our referees <laughs> are in their seventies. And, you know, I'm like, Hey, like, I mean, at some point you guys are going to be moving on here. And they're like, yeah, we can't get anybody who's young. And I think the average age of an official, like in Michigan is like 55 or almost 60 and young people aren't interested. And you think about it. Well, what does a young person see from that job that you're going to get booed and yelled at by the fans and nasty things are going to be said to you and you're going to make mistakes. So therefore there's going to be a ton of conflict and it's going to be stressful. And I just kind of think, isn't that sort of what, you know, public office is going to be at some point. And therefore there'll only be a certain type of people that want that. And maybe they're not the best people we want for leaders though. Yeah. I don't know anybody that wants me in that situation. What's your next one? Tyler asked him, if you're considering recommending, recommending somebody for a high promotion, what qualifies them? What are you looking for to be a good military leader? And McChrystal's response is, there's no single one, but the two that I would jump on is first, self-discipline. You say, well, all soldiers are self-disciplined. And I'd say that's not true. Self-discipline to me is whether, not whether or not you get up in the morning and make your bed, although those might be indicators. It's really, do you treat people the way you know they should be treated? Do you do the hard things, even though they're inconvenient or frightening? Not all military leaders do that. Not all leaders do that. The second is the ability to make a decision with uncertainty. I've struggled with years about asking whether that it is born or developed. I remember asking my father, how do you tell who's going to be good in combat? I was just a brand new lieutenant asking the old soldier's wisdom. He said, who can make decisions in combat? I said, well, how do you know? He says, until you're in combat, you don't know. You can tell as he described, a person who's trying to drive uncertainty to zero will keep asking for more information They'll try to mitigate all the uncertainty out. And of course, that's impossible. Some people have the ability to live without having perfect knowledge. And yet, they can accept that and still make decisions decisively. And I like the comment that he said, it's about good habits, you know, and doing the right thing all the time. And that that is really the hardest part for anybody. And that's, that's a kind of a life lesson in general is just like, what do you really practice, right? It's one thing to say something, but then they have to go live it every day. Uh, that's another one. And again, he's a big one. I make your bed every day. I also just found that at the very end of the podcast, Tyler asked him like, it's rumored that you only eat one meal a day. And he's like, yep, I only eat dinner. And I thought that takes some self-discipline as well. Well, yeah, it, but I think that's just one aspect of self-discipline in that he would say the greater self-discipline is prioritizing your time throughout the day. He doesn't eat one meal just because he likes to eat one meal. I think it's because he's utilizing every moment of his day, whether it's physical training, which shows that he's, which is part of the self-discipline, but that's just one of the little things you're supposed to do every day. The other thing you're supposed to do is work hard, utilize every moment. 
interact with people in a positive, effective way. Listen to people when they talk, which is really, really hard. But I think he's saying it's doing all the little things right is the self-discipline. And that shows in how you behave and how you become a good military leader. It's a lot of pressure to never have a moment where you're just doing nothing. Well, and you make a really good point about it must be a lot of pressure to be a leader in the military and to especially be leading a, a squad or a, a, you know, a division of, of men into battle and stuff like that. And I like what you said about how you never quite know what you have until you're actually in battle. One of the things that he kind of talked about as an issue within the military itself is that a lot of times you've got officers that if they have one blemish, maybe just something didn't go right on the battlefield or field or in their career, all of a sudden now they kind of are not up for promotion and they can't move up the ranks. And he was just kind of saying like, no, like we should probably be letting these people have experience and listening to what do they learn from their failures so that they can keep leading and also have the opportunity to keep moving up. And, and it just sort of seemed very interesting about how maybe you were trying to have a safe military career so you can keep moving up and not have any blemishes versus those who are going to get their hands dirty and probably going to have mistakes. And the idea of pursuing no mistakes is the same idea that you just talked about. It's like getting rid of all the uncertainties so you can make a decision that is going to be right for sure. But that's not his point. His point is you have to deal with the vagaries, deal the uncertainties, and still make the decision. And just sometimes it works out for the best. Sometimes it works out for the worst, but you take it. Just like Eisenhower wrote a letter of apologizing for the D-Day invasion not going well beforehand because there were so many uncertainties and it went great, but he still wrote the letter because he's getting ready for the uncertainties. I think he's probably not eating a meal and smoking cigarettes while he wrote that letter because he's utilizing every moment of his day, which is self-discipline. We should all strive for this, right? Yes. I, I remember actually reading a book about Eisenhower and one of the things they said of why they considered him to be the, the general of the allied <laughs> forces was that he only needed like six or less hours of sleep a night. And therefore he could, you know, go the rest of the day. And that was really important, obviously, to, to handle the workload and stuff like that, which I guess that would also be a, a form of discipline. You know, the thing about him talking about soldiers and making decisions and trying to find out who can perform, I just thought that was so interesting because it just takes you into a world that I know nothing about. I mean, obviously you and I are teachers and we obviously know what the military is and, and we've, you know, read lots of books on war and stuff like that. But the idea of, how does a general or how does a military leader evaluate other leaders or officers? I think it was just sort of kind of an, some interesting inside baseball that you get. Oh, absolutely. And I'm fascinated with this idea. I'm fascinated with the concept of the military. I've read books about the Naval Academy. I've read books about uh, the Navy in general and submarines specifically are something that's really interesting to me for whatever reason. But the idea of this discipline and life of pursuit and selfless pursuit. And the hard part for me is obeying the people above me because I've had bad leaders I've worked under in the past. And if they told me to charge up into a hill into, into gunfire, I'd be like, no, nah, I don't think so. Maybe that's why I'm not well suited for it. Well, I had an uncle that, you know, uh, served in Vietnam and then uh, got out when he was allowed to get out. And, you know, sometimes we asked, hey, did you ever think about just being a career military professional? And he said he did, but he personally just struggled having to take orders from people that he felt were beneath him or, or, or dumber than him, as he said. Absolutely. That's the part that I, I, I love the, the training. I'd want to learn how to shoot. I would be uh, I'd love the push ups and the running. Great. I just I'm scared to run into up, up into a hill if I'm not if I'm following a bad leader. That's what makes me not as committed as the people that are, are in the military. Well, I want to uh, move on to another question then. This was right at the beginning of the podcast. And Tyler Cowen says, let me start with some questions about risk. Now, if we go to the post-war era after World War II, a lot of serious intellectuals thought the risk of a nuclear war was pretty high in the next few decades. We built bomb shelters everywhere. Were we then overreacting or are we today underreacting? When were we thinking badly about risk? And then McChrystal says, it's funny, my third grade classmate, David Langley, his father was an Air Force major, and they actually built a shelter under their front yard, a bomb shelter. And that was in the time in the early 1960s when that seemed to be very, very real. I don't think they were overreacting. I actually think that the likelihood of nuclear war was probably closer than we thought. Now we've lived near the precipice long enough where we take it for granted. 
Things like cybersecurity, I think, are a greater risk than we actually admit. And Don, what do you think when you think about nuclear war in the past, cybersecurity today? Are we properly or, or underrating the risk here? The nuclear war thing came out of nowhere in that there was no fear of it. Nobody even knew of an atomic bomb. Then there was atomic bombs exploding in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and Americans were witness to it, whether in person or on the newspapers. And then quickly, 10 years later, this could all happen everywhere. And that was present in everybody's mind. And it became a new thing that people were scared of and could visualize. And that's something that really terrified the masses. You and I weren't around for this, but other people really believed in it. And I remember seeing fallout shelter signs by the post office growing up. And I didn't do duck and cover drills, but my parents did. And the whole idea is just really terrifying because you can visualize it. The cyber thing is something that's slowly developed over time. We know that people have gotten their emails hacked and whatnot, and it always seems to turn out okay, although painful and unpleasant as the experience is. But it's not something that's easily visualized where just a country can take over the internet or just destroy the way that your system works. And it's something that I think people don't imagine. They imagine the convenience of having a internet-enabled thermostat, but they don't imagine the convenience of not being able to turn on their, their furnace because the Chinese have hacked your, the, the internet. And so, and that's just what it does to our local consumers to say nothing of our military and whatnot. So it's just harder to imagine. It's, it's something you can't picture the way fireballs are easily pictured. So I think we're properly rating the risk in the Cold War, but currently I'd agree with, well, clearly I'd agree with the guy that's way smarter than me, the General McChrystal that we're underrating our risk here now. Well, it's funny because, I mean, I remember walking around as a kid with my parents or some other friends and you'd walk by a building that had been built in the late 50s or 60s and you saw the fallout shelter sign, right? And by that point, we all used to just laugh and say, oh my God, those people were so weird. They were storing all these canned goods and they had these duck and cover drills. And as you said, like my mom can vividly remember doing duck and cover drills and is almost like, you know, partially kind of traumatized by the whole idea and really believed that there was a nuclear invasion that was going to happen at any point. I just think it's interesting that you go from people who thought it was a real fear. I mean, they did have the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I've always wondered how close there were other events that maybe have never been publicized that only like people high up in the government know about, oh, we almost got, you know, had an issue here. Clearly that fear has subsided. And I think he makes a good point of you can't be on red alert all the time. And in some ways, we've just sort of gotten used to the idea that we're living you know, on the brink of a nuclear holocaust at any point. It's probably still present. I mean, so Russia is not certainly not a uh, said a perfectly calm and in control place. And there's more countries with nuclear weapons ever before, one of which North Korea is constantly threatening and saber rattling and developing missiles that could theoretically meet the United States. And we all kind of chuckle because they named them silly names like the typo dong too. I mean, but... <laughs> That is the name of one of their missiles. Stephen Colbert had a great bit. This particular type of dong is really long range and dangerous. And we all snicker because it's like, ah, oh, this has been around forever. We can't, we've kind of passed this on. My parents were afraid of this. My grandparents are afraid of this. Like, this is not a really big a deal. It can't be that bad, but it, it's real. And we don't even think about it at all. At least I don't. Well, your favorite clock, the doomsday clock, sits at 11.59, 59. It's been there for a couple of decades, and it's just always sort of measured the, you know, when humanity is going to end, and a lot of people always just thought it's going to be from nuclear bombs. But I guess, is it possible that, like, nuclear war is the one lesson that humans may have actually learned in that we dropped, obviously, bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II? But since then, we have not uh, dropped these things on each other. And people seem pretty terrified of the idea of what happens to humanity or the earth if they do. Now, people have been building lots of these things and definitely, as you're saying, saber rattling. But do you think it's actually possible that we've learned a lesson? It's ever present in that the media, the TV, movies, shows are constantly talking about this post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear thing, whether it's Red Dawn or Rambo or um, The Hundred, there's just, it's constantly present. It's an interesting idea that never really quite leaves our mind. And it is a little bit ever present, but maybe it's because we've seen the movies and TVs and we're like, well, it hasn't happened yet. So it's probably not gonna happen. 
but yeah, it's always out there. By the way, my favorite clock is the national debt clock, not the doomsday clock. I, I stand corrected there. I will make sure I cite that properly in future podcasts. You know, the other thing though, is going back to the cybersecurity thing, I feel like, and this kind of is the part where we talked a little bit earlier about, about the failure to imagine, right? Of being well-read, of being able to think from a large vantage point of one, I still think nuclear war is possible and therefore people should be thinking about how does it maybe happen, right? And the same thing with cybersecurity is how does this happen? And there's some, been some really interesting sort of realistic sci-fi books that have come out about military stuff. And the idea that have Americans really thought about the supply chain? A lot of our, you know, devices and chips are made over in China. And, you know, basically the idea is, are we sure that they're being properly produced without some sort of way that China or another nation could hack in there and control these things. And so a lot of these books just sort of ask a lot of questions about, do we really know how our devices are being made? And should we be asking more questions? And, you know, you've seen it a little bit, but I do wonder, should we be asking more about, isn't a national security issue if we're not making more electronics and chips here in America, where maybe we can have some more oversight about what's actually going into them? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, we've seen, even if that none of that is true, we've seen how perilous our supply chain is. We, I read this week that our, all these semiconductor companies are putting tens of billions of dollars into development of new factories, but none of them are into legacy chips, which are the ones that we really need for our cars and our trucks. So nobody's really making more of those. The orders are going to go unfilled for a year or two or more. And perhaps we need to say like, we're going to make them here because this is the thing we really need. Or perhaps the auto industry says, look, we'll take these new generation chips. But regardless, we need, even if we don't have this fear that there's some sort of foreboding evil presence in our devices, we should have a fear that we just can't get enough of them. And maybe we should produce them here or be willing to pay more for them because we are producing them here. No, I think that's, uh, those are all really well uh, said. It seems like that's been a consistent message from Obama to Trump and now even Biden is they want to do more onshoring. But as your friend Dan said a couple of weeks ago, the supply chain still seems firmly embedded in Asia and in China, and it doesn't seem like it's changing anytime soon. No, and it takes a while to build these things, but maybe we need to build them. Maybe, but there are factories that come back to America. They just don't have any workers in them because robots can do more and more of it. But we need to develop said factories, which means we need long-term planning, which means that the politicians have to do the thing that they're not good at, which is really think long run and think not about their short run capital and invest in this. And that's a hard thing to do. No, you're right. What's, uh, what's your third thing you found interesting from the podcast? The other one I want to talk about is Crystal talks about mandatory military service. And he thinks that we, he talks at length about our military being a separate class. And the biggest predictor of who's in the military are if their parents were in the military. And that we've driven our recruiting to really focus on people whose parents were in the military, because that's the easiest kids to recruit. And that we need the military to represent society. And he mentions a mandatory military service, which I am a huge fan of. I mean, we've talked about the greatest generation and these people served together in World War II. People from Kansas worked side by side with people from Brooklyn who have entirely different, but yet they bonded. These are the old politicians, the Bob Dole type people who were really could come together with people that were dead, different beliefs from different places and had a common experience. I really think we need mandatory military service for everybody to come together. That doesn't mean more wars. It means a unifying experience. And a lot of countries have this. And I like this idea. And I like that McChrystal brought it up. I thought that was a fascinating. In fact, that was one of the major themes I took away from the podcast is he seems very concerned about the makeup of the military. And as you were saying, it's a lot of people with military family tradition that join. It also seems like now the major recruiting zones are the Midwest and the Southeast. And therefore, his big concern seems to be just sort of insular thinking and in that you just get people from the same area, like-minded, maybe thinking, and all of a sudden you're you're losing that broad-based perspective that you wanted. You know, he talked about the example that Yale is just now considering bringing back an ROTC program after it's been gone for 40 years. And he's like, man, like that would be great to, again, diversify your student population at Yale, but also to get some Yale thinking in the military and stuff like that. You know, I, I thought this is a major issue that seems really difficult to solve, especially when you consider a lot of people 
if they have economic opportunities, they probably are not thinking about the military. And yet the military, especially with the rise of technology, more than ever needs highly competent people to be filling a lot of roles, it seems like. Oh, yeah. He talks at length about that, too, that the greatest need for military is hacker type people. And I don't think we're even opening the door if we think about military the way it's traditionally done. How do we get these people involved? How do we get these people who aren't in the military, whose parents weren't in the military, and get them to be interested in it? And it's a fascinating idea. The other big group that they get is recent immigrants, but they need to diversify out and get everybody in. And perhaps if everybody's required to get in, they get a taste of it. Maybe they do two years and they get out. That's fine. But they can also say like, oh, I want to pursue this because this is really interesting. Because I think it is a selfless service that people can come into and really learn a lot from. In some ways, I never really considered it, but I wish I had. I mean, I guess there's a romantic part of me that thinks I, I you know, would have been interesting to serve. I, I don't know if I could answer it like you're answering it now, but I would say I agree with you when you say a common experience, right? I mean, we always talk about how like we don't love how Americans communicate with each other and is a common experience the, the sort of thing that might actually help with communication. And also, you know, he talks about the idea of you get people from Yale or, or people from uh, high ends of society or, or academia, all of a sudden serving with people from maybe the lower socioeconomic society and having to communicate, having to work together, having to, to, to see how other people are living and thinking that all of that really is probably more of a positive than a negative. And I, I think that's just a fascinating comment he's making. I also thought it was interesting when he just said, look, if there's one area where the military should accept more risk, it's probably in ground warfare, and maybe we should have fewer tanks, have fewer ground soldiers, and make up that with more people in tech, more people ready for cyber war, more people in security. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a long, long history of thinking tanks are dumb and a waste of time and money, yet we still spend billions on training people to work in tanks and buying tanks and maintaining tanks and our real threats electronic. And those people that are doing that should be doing something else. You mentioned the word training. And he also, that seems to be another theme, another critique he had of our current military is we're not doing enough training. He said that like in World War II, we had trained over 5,000 U.S. soldiers in the language of Japanese. And he thought that maybe in our last war in Afghanistan, maybe we trained a tenth that number of soldiers in speaking the local languages. And then instead, we're relying on kind of outsourced workers to do this sort of work. And the idea of maybe we need to invest more in our officers and our soldiers to make them more well-rounded. He brought up the idea that like, look, we probably can't just rely on corporate America to train tech workers for the military, the military should probably get involved in taking people and giving them these skills, using them for the military, and then people can go out and, you know, probably get a job in society with that sort of stuff. I just thought all of that was really fascinating. I didn't really realize these were all big issues, but it kind of makes sense. Absolutely. And probably if they know the language, they know the culture too. Yeah. You know, you could say that deep down the Peace Corps was the idea that People were going to go out and live in a lot of um, different developing nations and, and develop some language skills and some cultural skills. I've heard some people say there was another sinister side to it of we're going to get Americans experienced in all these places in case we ever need them if there was ever a military engagement needed. But a part of me wonders if, you know, maybe it's military service or maybe it's Peace Corps service, right? All of these things, are you developing a skill that maybe society could call on if it's ever needed, if you know what I'm saying? Yeah, mandatory service of some site, not necessarily in a military, but maybe it starts as a military and then you're doing some service somewhere else. Doesn't have to be in the different part of the world, could be in the different part of the United States. Move out, meet some people, do some things. The hard part just seems to be the market in terms of if you're a tech worker, you can go make a lot of money in the private sector. It's you're not going to be able to make as much in the military. And I wonder how the military can find a way to to solve that i guess you know i know for like doctors for instance they will pay for your medical school and then you'll owe the military so many years of service after that as a doctor and that seems like a pretty good deal for everybody but i guess i'd be curious like how do they retain doctors so that they've got experienced ones after that and i guess maybe they pay what the market rate is i'm i'd be curious like is there a way to issue people like savings bonds or something or some sort of a, a stock option? Or how do you keep that talent around? Because that would be the part that I'd be really 
wanting to try to solve, I guess. I have a friend that was, uh, they ran cross country with and track in college. And he was a doctor. He went to the military school and he became a doctor. He served mostly in Kuwait. And then he came back and he was on reserves for a while and he is no longer in the military, but he's a professor and a doctor. And yeah, retaining him is hard because he has got all the skills and he can make a lot more money outside the military. But the reason he went in the military medical school wasn't necessarily that it's because his father served and his grandfather served. So again, we're pulling from the same group of people. But the difference with doctors is this onerous, expensive medical education that makes it worthwhile joining the military. Also true of flight school. But those are the people that have the greatest amount of opportunities when they leave the military. And trying to retain those people is a tremendous problem for the military. They really need pilots badly, but they're leaving in droves because they can make more money in uh, in the real world, not real world, in the private sector. I'm just curious, how many years would you require for your mandatory military service? Would it be two or would you would you make it more like four or five? Because it seems like some of those nations that have like two years of service, it seems like by the time you get people up to speed, they're kind of able to probably be getting processed out, if that makes sense. I, I go one and a half. Basically, the lar- shortest I think you can join the military for is two years, and that's infantry. But if you join and you do basic training, I think that takes three months. I really am speaking from a point of ignorance here. I don't know that much. Although I am an honorary army recruiter after a tour at Fort Irwin many, many years ago, I think two years makes sense to me. You know, we've talked before. What do you do with 18-year-old kids? You go to college (laughs) and they don't really know what they're doing. Put them in the military till they're 20. Then they're worth something. And then from there, they can stay with the military or get out. I like this idea. Yeah, no, you're right. A national service. I I do think there's some merit to it. Although I feel like you would never get that passed nationally in our country. Am I correct? Well, unless we went to a time of war, then you could continue it. I mean, there was the uh, pretty much everybody, all the men were in the military in World War II. There was a draft for Vietnam that many people with wealth were able to avoid. But it is uh, something that you could really bring through. It would just have to continue on from an existing situation, which is not happening anytime soon. The places with mandatory military service are smaller places like Israel or that are constantly under threat or South Korea, although I read an article in the Wall Street Journal that a lot of pe- people in South Korea gain weight so they don't have to go into military service. You just have to get overweight enough and then you don't have to go. Mm, okay, well, I guess that's a strategy. When I lived in Egypt, <laughs> they had mandatory military service for everybody, including the rich and the poor. And I, what I always thought was interesting was I taught more of the elite students in, uh, of society and they all said like, no, like you have to go. They, they, there's not a lot of ways to kind of buy your way out of it and stuff like that. Although I'm sure there was ways to get different assignments and stuff like that, that were maybe more comfortable, but everybody went, everybody served for at least two years and everybody seemed to accept that it was a fact of life. It's doable. Well, then I'll just bring up the final exchange that I just kind of wanted to talk about. They talked about China and if we are thinking enough about risk with China. And so McChrystal says, I think the idea that China might do something on Taiwan, because it hasn't happened for so many years, we tend to think it will never happen. We tend to think in terms of linear. If something hasn't happened for a long time, it never will. And then we're always shocked. And then Professor Cowan says, so you think we extrapolate too much from the relatively recent past? And then McChrystal says, yeah, if you think about most people, they think that national boundaries don't change much. But that's because after World War II, not a lot of national boundaries have changed. Some have. But if you go before that, they actually change in history pretty routinely. The idea that the globe and national boundaries and identities are what they are now and will be in the future will be counter to historical experience. And Don, they just have a great exchange about China, Taiwan, war, and that, look, everything is always moving in this world and that, yeah, maybe we're in this weird aberration for the last 50, 75 years, not much has changed, but why do we think that that's also going to be the future? Yeah, I think he makes a good point that we just assume that things are going to stick the way they are. And China is rattling their sabers about Taiwan, and they really asserted themselves in Hong Kong, which has changed the way Hong Kong runs entirely, and they limited the freedoms there in Hong Kong. I think in China, they think in a much longer perspective in terms of years, not only, as you know, in the long run, but also in the short run. They're not concerned about necessarily today. They're making slow progress to what they think is going to happen. 
So this creep in Taiwan, I mean, that's where all our semiconductors from are from. I somehow I'm very concerned about those, but less concerned about the people of Taiwan. Maybe I'm pretty uh, naive in that sense, but yeah, I, I think they're working that way. And it just may be, what is the horizon for Xi Jinping? Is it five years, 50, 100? I, I don't know. And it, there's definitely a creep there where they don't want to be stepped on. And China sees themselves as a world power in the past and in the future. And I think they're really frustrated with the current. I think this Taiwan issue is fascinating. And all fall long, as I was reading the news, America was running aircraft carriers or naval ships between Taiwan and China through that strait. You had the Chinese Air Force doing huge flybys with armed planes across Taiwan or near them. And you just have two large nations just obviously wanting to stick their chest out and just remind each other of how much military might they have, the tension does not seem to be de-escalating. You've got China that wants Taiwan back as, as under their control, and America has said, you know, we believe a democratic Taiwan is best for the world. You obviously have Japan and a lot of other American allies in that nation concerned that maybe America would back down if China were to do something. And Nobody is taking a step away, if you know what I'm saying. And that's the part that I think maybe America isn't paying enough attention to this issue. Yeah, probably not. We're very concerned with this pandemic and yelling at each other about masks and vaccines rather than maybe this big world issue. Or maybe it's that's the, the Trump administration movement is we're going to be tough on China and get the hell out of the world stage and be just isolationists, which seems ironically to be continuing in a Biden administration. Right. At the same time, if you're not leading, then you're basically saying it's it's up for anybody else who wants to do it. And I think that comes back to sort of maybe bite you in the end. And I, you know, whether you want it or not, I still think America can be a force for good in the world and can still be an ally for many. You know, over the summer, I finished a book called 2034, A History of the Next World War. And it was written by a former admiral. And what was interesting in this book, and again, it's science fiction, but it basically just sort of imagines that the next world war is triggered from a bunch of activity between this strait between Taiwan and China, and it's America and a Chinese boat, and they kind of um, sort of run into each other a little bit, and sort of everybody's kind of fumbling their way through, but because the tension is so great, you end up with two nations like basically sending tactical nuclear weapons at different cities, and they're just kind of going tick for tat as they're trying to, you know, give them payback, but neither one wants to just unload their entire stockpile. And you might say, well, this is just a book, but yet it was written in a way that just sort of imagines like, hey, when you have this much tension and all you are is one bad miscommunication away, there could be some major issues that come from this. I know you were super interested in this book and that this is a it could happen. I, it's hard to foresee because we're looking so far much in the present and trying to get over this uh, pandemic. And really, maybe this is our big uh, mistake that we'll look back into in 20 years and say we should have been focusing on China. Or maybe the American people won't care at all. Maybe they'll bring the microchips back to the United States, make them here, and no Americans will really care about Taiwan or have the desire to put our people in risk there. I think that could be the other trend is that, hey, Iraq and Afghanistan, that that wasn't much fun. That didn't turn out real well. Let's keep our troops at home and just be isolationist. Who cares if China controls Taiwan? Since 1982, polling firms have been asking Americans this question of, do you support using U.S. troops if China invades Taiwan? In 1982, 19% of Americans said, yes, I support it. In 2020, 41% of Americans said they would support using U.S. troops. And I've just noticed the, the change in tone in Washington. I've noticed more and more leaders wanting to talk about this Taiwan issue. And while I definitely think we should be very engaged on it, I also kind of am wondering how much warmongering are we going to start to kind of hear and get the drums going again of, you know, we, we have to use the military. And to me, it's like, shouldn't we be working for some other solution that allows everybody to save face but yet de-escalates the situation. I think your uh, polling represents a proximity to Vietnam because I don't think many Americans know the difference between Taiwan and Vietnam and what those two conflicts would look like. And they're very, very, very different because Vietnam's a civil war and a developing nation and Taiwan is extremely 
developed nation, well, portion of China, one China policy, but it, it's a facing a giant adversary that China is. So I, I don't know. I, I doubt, I, I, I think Americans are a little bit ignorant about this, but yeah, perhaps we'll rattle some sabers. Perhaps we'll really get involved. I, I just have a tough time picturing the American public motivating the politicians, motivating the public to go to war against China if American citizens aren't tremendously in danger or damaged by any Chinese aggression in Taiwan. And then the other thing I wondered is, are we sure that maybe everybody just driving their aircraft carriers through the straits and flying their planes, maybe that is the way that everybody saves face? Because the other thing too would be war between the two nations Obviously, there'd be a ton of destruction and loss of life, but it's horrific for the economies and bad for business. You kind of wonder, like, at the end of the day, is that where maybe cooler heads prevail? Seems to be. When was the last time there was a major conflict between big armed parties? It hasn't happened. Right. It's probably more cyber attacks now, right? It's probably more ransomwares and just sort of countries kind of almost, quote unquote, messing with each other than actually bringing full out soldiers onto a battlefield. Agreed. Well, I don't know, Don. I, I just, uh, this was a great podcast and I just recommend everybody listen to it. it. It really makes you just think about the military in so many different ways. We didn't even bring up some of my other favorite quotes, but he talks about the idea of the possibility of like drone strikes on individuals in countries with the technologies out there. Another thing that he kind of had just sort of mentioned was how he was sort of surprised that we haven't seen more terror attacks on a smaller scale in America. Those are also worth kind of listening and considering. I just can't recommend enough to listen to it. We will definitely be posting the link to the podcast in our show notes. Absolutely. I, I don't know if we did it justice, but hopefully we uh, brought up some points that are make it even more interesting. Definitely. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely, Zach. Have a good one. Take care.